Turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to read a couple different passages from Exodus here dealing with the whole concept of jealousy. We're going to read from Exodus 20, starting at verse 3, and reading through verse 6. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Look at that for just a minute. God gives the first and second commandment, but he gives us a reason for that. Why should we worship only God? Why should we not make any kind of carved image or any kind of idol? And the answer is found there in that little word, for. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. The word for here could easily be translated because. I don't want you worshiping other gods. I don't want you making any kind of idols because I am jealous. Now, jump ahead a couple of chapters to chapter 32. And we're going to see how this whole notion of jealousy plays out and comes to expression. We're going to read from Exodus 32, read the first 14 verses. When the people saw that Moses delayed come to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, 
tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. And then turn ahead with me to chapter 32, verse 25. Verse 25 in that same chapter. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose, to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. And then turn with me to chapter 34. Chapter 34, starting at verse 11. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go 
lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let's go to God in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we pray that the words that uh, we hear this evening will sit heavy on our hearts, that we will remember them, that we will do everything we can to cast out the various uh, gods that we may have in our, in our minds and in our hearts. Pray that you will give Pastor Norm clarity of mind and the words that he needs to convey that message to us and open our hearts and soften our hearts so that we have hearts of flesh, not hearts of stone. We just ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you are probably raising some questions in your mind. What kind of God is that who becomes so angry? He threatens to destroy all of those people that he just brought out of the land of Egypt. Maybe you have been accused of jealousy sometime. I have. Maybe you are confused by this whole notion of jealousy and what God is doing here in these passages. There's good reason for confusion. If you are still reading some of Shakespeare's plays, you know that many of his tragedies are built around the theme of jealousy. People like Othello the Moor, Macbeth, are demonstrating jealousy and wanting something that they can't have, and they demonstrate a kind of behavior, a kind of rabid emotion that finally ends in their death. And then people conclude, you know, jealousy is an evil thing. It's a sinful thing. But wait a minute. God calls himself jealous and says, my name is jealous. If you read through the New Testament, and even in the ESV, English Standard Version that we're using, you will find a couple of places where in Paul's letters, jealousy is listed as a sin. If you read the NIV versions, you're going to find that there are at least 14 passages in the NIV New Testament where jealousy is listed as a sin to be overcome. If you read the New American Standard Bible, you're going to find at least 12 passages where jealousy is listed as a sin. Then if you have any kind of logic in your head, you say, wait a minute, how can that be? 
How can the Old Testament claim that jealousy is an attribute and a virtue of God? And in the New Testament, it's a sin to be overcome. Just for the fun of it, I plugged in my computer. You go and you can ask the computer all kinds of things. And you say, tell me about jealousy. And your computer will make you even more confused. Computers give you all kinds of garbage and some stuff that's reliable. Don't trust it. What's happened is that a couple of our Bible translations, particularly the NIV and the New American Standard Bible, were quite careless in their translation of certain words in the New Testament. If you go back into the Greek, there is the root word called zealous. Z-E-L-O-S, we would spell it in the English, a little different in the Greek. Zealous has attributes and qualities of intense emotion. There's a lot of feeling, a lot of uh, excitement connected with being zealous. Well, zealous in the Greek has two basic meanings that can apply. It can mean jealousy or it can mean envy. For some reason, the NIV translators chose jealousy when they should have been choosing envy. If you go back to the old King James Version, the original King James, none of that creeps in. In all of those passages, envy is the word that is chosen. And that's the way it should be. If it is an attribute of God, it cannot be a sin in the New Testament. Very simple. Those translations were careless, and they should have caught it, but they didn't. What you have is that basic notion of jealousy, which has to be explained and contrasted with envy. Jealousy is the desire and the effort to protect and preserve that which belongs to you. If somebody comes along and tries to court my wife, take her away from me, I'm going to be angry. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to do whatever I can to prevent that because she's mine. God is saying, these people that I brought out of Egypt are my people. They've been my people from day one. I am not going to let them go. I'm going to do everything I possibly can to protect them and preserve them. Coveting or envy is wanting something or someone that is not yours. If I say, oh, Wilma's getting up in years. I think I'll look for a younger. That would be dead wrong. That's coveting. That's covered in the Tenth Commandment. That's envy. That is always a sin. God is very concerned. God knows and understands his people. He brings them out of Egypt. He has performed 
10 tremendous plagues. He marched them through the Red Sea on dry ground, had walls of water standing so that these two million people could walk through in dry ground. He then let the water go back over the Egyptian Pharaoh's army, and they all died. He protected them with a cloud, a, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud in the day so nobody could get through it and nobody could see them. God had demonstrated his possession that these were his people and he was going to do everything he could to protect them. And now Moses goes up the mountain for the second time. They had already gotten the Ten Commandments on the first tablets. Moses goes up on the mountain and he stays there for 40 days. You say, what's all going on up there? God doesn't tell us all the details, but the people begin to get anxious and say, where's Moses? Moses led us out of Egypt. He led us through the wilderness this far. Now, where is Moses? Uh, Aaron, we need to have something to worship. And if you can figure out the psychology and the evil of that action that Aaron organizes and plans, you're dealing in strange rationale. How in the world can you say that the earrings that you and your kids have in their ears are really the God who brought you out of Egypt? That makes no sense whatsoever. And Aaron is supposed to be the high priest, the leader of God's people along with Moses. And Aaron says, so bring me your earrings and we'll fabricate and we'll make a nice golden calf and we'll worship it. And all the people fall into that silly trap and they say, yes, let's have a big party. This is the God who, God says, I am so angry. I am going to kill every one of you. I cannot tolerate this. Remember, not the first time God expressed his anger at sin. Go back to Genesis 6, the time of Noah. Evil permeated that whole world at that time. And God says, I can't endure this. I cannot tolerate that kind of evil in the world that I've created. And all of the people except this one family are living in sin and rebellion. And God literally wipes them all off the face of the earth. All the animals, all of the facilities, all the people except those eight in the ark. So God has done it before. God says, I'm going to do it again. Moses said, no, no, no. It's one of the most interesting dialogues you'll find in all the Old Testament. Moses says, wait a minute, God. God, I know you're angry. I know you have a right to be angry. But what are the Egyptians going to say? What are they going to say? You did all of those ten plagues to bring them out. You killed all of Pharaoh's army. And now you kill them? And what are the Canaanites going to say? God relented. God said, okay. 
I will tolerate that. I will do that. But there is something else that has to be done. Moses himself gets very angry. And Moses then calls the Levites together and say, put your sword on and go back and forth through the camp and kill whoever you can. 3,000 people died. These are God's people. And you say, Lord, how do we understand that? And some of that is a mystery to us because the scripture doesn't give us good, clear explanation. God is saying, the first thing I'm going to do, he makes this promise there in uh, Exodus 34, verse 11, which we read. God says, all right, I will relent, but I am going to drive out all of the tribes that are currently living in Canaan. All of them. Out. I will do that. They have to be out of Canaan. And you say, why? Those people have farms, they have vineyards, they have houses, they have towns. And God says, I cannot tolerate idolatry at all. We know that the Jordan River symbolizes death, symbolizes the passage from life to eternity. We also know that Canaan, the land of Canaan, symbolizes heaven. God cannot have idolatry in heaven. God cannot have idolatry in the land of Canaan because he had promised that land to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and said, that is my land and I'm reserving it for you. I will drive out all of these tribes. And if you read through the book of Joshua, you'll see that story play out in some very interesting detail. Tremendous number of people killed because they're idol worshipers. You see it at the Battle of Jericho. God himself is doing it. And God says, I will drive them out. But then he adds to that, when you come into the land and you're going to settle in some of their houses, in some of their towns, you're going to take over some of their vineyards, I want you to go in and wherever you see idols, destroy them. Wherever you see Asherim, get your axe and cut them down, throw them away. I cannot have those in Canaan. That is your job. When you reflect on that particular command of God, think for just a minute about Islam today. Muhammad picked up on that particular command and made it very much a part of his theology. So when a Muslim comes into a town and captures a town, one of the first things he has to do is look for crosses and destroy the crosses. If he sees churches with the name Christian, any kind of Christian persons or people, they have to be gotten rid of. Muhammad took that literally and said, we have to do that as Muslims. He's dead wrong. During the time of the Reformation, 
that same thing happened in Germany with the peasants. A lot of peasants who were not educated, who might not even have a Bible or might not read, they took this command and they said, all right, we have to go into the Catholic churches and tear down all the crucifixes. We have to destroy churches left and right. And it created a tremendous war in Germany called the Peasants' Revolt. And they were put down with tremendous loss of, of, of life. You and I are not commanded to do that. I hope and pray that none of you ever thinks, well, I have to go around to the local Muslim mosque and tear down. Uh, don't. That's a civil offense. You're going to get caught and you're going to be punished for it, rightly so. You and I have to recognize, though, that God, in his jealousy, is protecting and preserving his people. He's doing whatever is necessary to make certain that they remain true to him. And if you follow the story out in the Old Testament, you're, you're going to see multiple places where they keep going off into a ditch, doing something stupid, worshiping idols. And God has to constantly bring them back and sometimes punish them severely. But I don't want to end there. I want you to go with me very briefly to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. And some of you will say, didn't Pastor Bob preach from this quite often? Yes, he did. There's something here in chapter 10. John chapter 10, beginning at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. If that doesn't give you comfort, I don't know what does. We go through a variety of experiences, as Ben talked about this morning. Some of them are very difficult. Sometimes we have lives that are lost, and we say, oh, I wonder if we'll see that person in heaven. The scripture is very, very explicit. If you belong to Jesus, you will live forever in eternity. Yes, you and I sin. Yes, you and I find we fabricate idols sometimes. We make them up all kinds of ways. But if you believe in Jesus Christ and his death, which we will celebrate next Sunday morning, then you will never be lost. The blood of Jesus Christ covers all the sins we committed yesterday, the ones we commit today, and the ones we'll commit tomorrow. God will never allow one of us, his people, to perish.
Let's pray. Dear God and Father, sometimes that notion of jealousy stirs confusion. Sometimes it stirs deep passion. Sometimes creates intense anger. And we see, Lord, in these passages that we've looked at, that you are a righteous, holy God that cannot tolerate sin. We sang that beautiful song this morning, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty. We thank you for that. We thank you for the assurance that it gives us. And we pray that you will now go with us in a special way, that we might truly rejoice in our salvation. We might find a tremendous comfort and assurance in belonging to you. We ask it in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.